about that. Um, it might be helpful to know that uh, I grew up in the Sutherland Shire and I became a Christian when I was about 12 years old and entering into high school. And the, the church culture that I grew up in had a particular way of thinking. And the way that it was encouraged to think and to, and to read was we read Christian books that have been read by other Christian leaders that are within our church and we know what those books are if that kind of makes sense. And you're allowed to go to Christian camps, but only the Christian camps that we know uh, and kind of approve of. Uh, and, and for me, I was a particularly curious young lad. And, and if I could describe this culture, uh, perhaps it might be like a living the quiet life. Um, now, fast forward a little bit. And when I was preparing to be uh, ordained after I'd finished Bible college, one of the things that they do is they put you through some psych analyses, analyses to see how crazy you are. Turns out a lot. Um, now, one of, one of the tests they put on me is one that they call the Ocean Test, O-C-E-A-N. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this one before, but in that test, they, the O stands for openness to new experiences. And when they tested me on that one, I maxed out the algorithm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can't be more inclined to new experiences than anybody else that you know. So, Imagine that as, you know, 12, 13, you know, a teenage kid growing up in a Christian culture that said the things that you're allowed to read are the things that we approve of. And the places that, you know, it was, um, there was a lot of love and care. And, and, and in that community, that's where I met Jesus. But I would describe it as tribal thinking. Um, there came a point when I was 16 years old when I was quite interested in what Muslims believed. And so I went to my local bookshop and I bought the Quran uh, and I took it home and it sat next to my toilet uh, and I would read it in the evenings. Uh, and I remember a few of my Christian leaders finding out that I was reading the Quran and they pulled me aside to say, Tom, this is really dangerous. Like, this is not appropriate for, for what we're doing. And then if I fast forward into our early parenting days, um, the type of books that were deemed appropriate to read were only the Christian books that, that were written by certain authors. And there's no way that you would fathom reading a, a secular, non-Christian parenting book and then having a Christian critique on it. And so that's the kind of world and the Christian culture that I grew up in. I don't know if you've had a similar experience to that, but that was for me. And, and if I can summarise it, I'll call that the quiet life. Um, and, and certainly there's, there's some good in living a quiet life. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12 tells, it, tells us, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Um, but, but how do we kind of make sense of that in light of wisdom literature in the Bible? Particularly that there are large, huge chunks of the Bible that are devoted to thinking critically about the world that we live in and making wise decisions. And a lot of the wisdom literature that we read really could be almost secular. Like I was reading one this week about how to sharpen your axe. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, sharpen your axe. You know, that might not be helpful for your profession, but it's in the Bible, right? Uh, and it's in this wisdom literature. And so. If there are certain cultures that, that some of us might have grown up in that encourage the quiet life and, and encourage tribal thinking, let's compare that for a moment to another group. Now, uh, in, in the States, there's a group called the Christian Transhumanists. Uh, this is a fascinating uh, group of people. As transhumanists, they believe that the, uh, it's a good thing to move humans as we know them into the next state of evolution using the very best of science, technology, and medicine. And they are doing this from a theological perspective. 
Jesus came and died and suffer, suffered in order that death might be defeated and suffering might be removed. And so if we can find any scientific method to end suffering and make people live for 200 years long, then it is good, right, proper and Christian to do so. Is that fascinating? And so there's, there's Christians out there, like, like what I grew up in, who lived the quiet life. And yet there's Christians out there who live the progressive life, the seeking, searching, questioning, pushing forward. Where do we fit? In, like, what's the right thing to do? What's the biblical thing to do? And I, I raise that because I think Ecclesiastes has some really helpful words to say about how, how we make sense of both the quiet life and the progressive life. So if you've got a Bible with me, uh, with you, open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I want to introduce you to the two main speakers in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and the first one is this guy that we read about uh, called the teacher. So I'll read chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, when I grew up, um, I, uh, whenever we did touch uh, wisdom literature and Ecclesiastes, people would often say that the author of this one is Solomon. Have you guys heard that before? Um, and, and that's a fair thing to think. Like, it, it tells us that he's... Uh, son of David and king in Jerusalem, but it doesn't actually say that he's Solomon. And so if you would actually go back into Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it says these are the Proverbs of Solomon, king of Israel. And then if you go into Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, it says again, these also are the Proverbs of Solomon. So Proverbs is explicitly written by Solomon. We can take him to be the author. But Ecclesiastes doesn't say Solomon. It says the teacher and so we've got to think, well, who is this guy? Because it would be quite helpful because the teacher adds a lot of words to this book. Um, it might also be helpful to know that this term teacher is probably not the best translation of the word there. In the original Hebrew, it says the words of Kohelet. Uh, and it doesn't actually have a the in front of Kohelet. And so he's not saying the teacher. It says the words of teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, if you were to translate Kohelet into Greek, then you would get the word Ecclesiastes, which is where we get the title of the book. But the word, like, the word Kohelet means kind of the one who gathers, the one who draws people in, the one who um, has people around him. And so instead of teacher, because if we hear that the voice, the main voice of the one who's speaking in here is the teacher, then we're inclined to think that these are lessons for us to follow, Yeah. But what if his voice is? What if his title isn't teacher? What if his title is the popular one, which is a, a much better translation? Do you, do you kind of take them in a different way? Anyway, so his name is Kohelet. There's no the in front of it. Every time teacher turns up, don't read teacher. Read Kohelet because that seems to be what his his name is. And then if we were to ask, okay, if Kohelet is introduced to us just as a popular guy, what is his question? Now, in chapter 1, verse 3, hopefully he's really clear and he tells us what his main question that's driving all of this is. And he says, uh, What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? It's an interesting question, isn't it? And, you know, does it sound very Christian to you? I don't know. Even the first word that you get there, gain, like he's asking this financial question. How, how can life have the most profit to it. This is a financial term. And then if he was thinking about how we can kind of maximise spiritual well-being, then the rest of the Bible would use the term blessing there, 
What, what, how can we get a blessed life from all of the work that we do in partnership with our good Lord? Might be a Christian way of saying the same thing. But Kohelet, the, the popular one, says, what financial gain can be made from the hard work which I've got to do? And he uses this term, under the sun. And he uses the term under the sun 28 times in the whole book. So he's pretty repetitive on that one. And, and it's a phrase that doesn't turn up in the rest of the Bible as well. Um, and so I take it that this term under the sun means everything in this, spirit, in this non-spiritual realm. Everything that is not heavenly. Everything that is physical. Does that kind of make sense? And so he's phrased this question, what, what can be gained in this earthly life before I die? So if that's his question... What's his approach? What's his method for figuring this out? Uh, and he's very clear in this. If we go to uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. Now, these very first words, I thought to myself, um, would actually be better translated, I said in my heart. And it's important to translate them in that way because that phrase, I said in my heart, is repeated 18 times throughout the whole of the book. It's, a, it's very similar to under the sun. It's a phrase that we need to hear time and time again so that we get a, a feel for the particular method that this character is using to figure out wisdom. And so he says, I said in my heart. And he uses it again in, chap uh, in chapter 1, verse 16, 17, in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 3 and verse 10. Um, so in the opening scenes, he's saying the method that I'm using for figuring out how to live a good and profitable life is I will use my heart. I said in my heart, this is how I'll do it. Now, we kind of need to contrast that to how this phrase is used in the rest of the Bible. Um, it's used 25 other times outside of Ecclesiastes, but every single other time that it's used outside of Ecclesiastes, it has a significantly different light to it. Um, so if I flick back to Genesis chapter 27, you know the story of Jacob and Esau when they're chasing each other around like little brothers trying to bash each other? Not that I have that in my family at all ever. Um, but Genesis chapter 27 verse 41 uses the exact same phrase. And so here it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's pretty intense, isn't it? Every time the Bible uses, I said in my heart, outside of Ecclesiastes, there is a negative tone to it. And so we're being introduced here to a popular guy in search of profit who follows his heart to figure out wisdom. And so if that's his method, we can then see, well, his quest is obviously filled with exploring all of this, these different ways. Um, in chap I'm back in Ecclesiastes now. In chapter 2, verse 10, uh, it says that his, his quest, the way that he applied his question and his method, is that he denied, no I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labour. So can you see how Kohelet is quite scientific in his pursuit? He, he's a really thoughtful guy, and he's like, all right, I want to figure out what can be gained, and I'm going to use my heart to, 
to figure it out. And so I'm going to apply myself to agriculture, to landscaping, to uh, wealth, to human acquisition of slaves, to sex, to all of these different things. And I'm, I'm going to embrace wisdom and I'm going to embrace folly as my heart decide, desires. And I will just do everything so that I can figure out what is the best way to get the most gain in this life. Is that kind of making sense of this guy? He's interesting, isn't he? And so is Kohelet a positive character? Is he a negative character? You know, he's a fascinating guy. Like, I would describe him as a a heart-led, pleasure-seeking, profit-maximising, thoughtful, reflective and religious and also progressive fictional character. I think Kohelet is a fictional character who has been created by the main speaker who gets only three verses in the whole book, in order to help us critique popular wisdom. He's introduced in the first verse as the popular one, and he takes us through his method of using everything to embrace everything to figure out how I can maximise profit. Fascinating guy, isn't he? Um, So if he is one of the speakers of Ecclesiastes, Who then is the other speaker of Ecclesiastes? And this guy only gets three verses in the whole thing, but he is probably more important than Kohelet. Um, He is a person whom I call the father. Um, If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that it says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Can you see how Kohelet didn't say those words? These are the words presented to us by the author of the book. He's saying, this is the character that I'm about to introduce to you. And then the character begins speaking. Meaningless, meaningless, let's try everything. That's his approach. And then if you skip over all the way to the end of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, then you'll find the father steps in again with some words. Only at the end, only two verses. In chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, he says this, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Is that fascinating? That all of Ecclesiastes, all of the words in the middle, seem to be a fictional character created by the father so that a 17-year-old man who's about to leave the family home will be well-equipped when he meets popular wisdom in the workplace. Is that kind of interesting? Each person, as they leave the family home, they will go out and they will meet guys that are popular, that will have people gathered around them, and they'll be speaking things that sound legit and sound cool and, and looks like these people are wealthy and successful and wise and thoughtful and even a little bit religious. But the question is, my son... Should you follow them? Should you have your wisdom guided by your heart? Should you embrace folly? Or, as the Bible says, should we trust the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will lead your paths straight? Can you see how there's different type of wisdoms going on there? I imagine if Ecclesiastes were to be written today... Um, instead of having a big theme of meaningless, which might have been the, the popular wisdom of the day, um, if we were to write today that, you know, a ballad of a good Aussie bloke, 
then it might say something like happiness, happiness, everything for happiness. I became the CEO of a big beer company and I won the footy tipping, uh, footy tipping competition five years in a row. And so I decided to apply myself to wisdom and to write it down for all the young fellas. I've learnt that a good bloke works hard for his family. He sends his kids to a good school. He knows how to have a good laugh. He respects all religions, knowing that love is love, and all of them lead to the same place in the end. Happiness, happiness, everything for happiness. Do you think that would be a fair kind of you know, approach for summarising popular wisdom for today? Maybe it is. But can you see how Ecclesiastes is written by a loving father who cares for his son and wants to set him up to be able to do good, thoughtful, God-fearing life in the world? And so he's invited him into a story, a fable, where a fictional character is presented, a convincing, attractive fictional character, but an ultimately doomed fictional character who concludes that the best of the world's wisdom is meaningless, it is vapour, it is mist, it blows and it will not last. Is that fascinating? I think that's fascinating. And particularly as you think about wisdom literature in the Bible, that we've got um, a whole chunk of the Bible that is devoted to preparing us for critical thinking as we engage with the world. And then a whole book of the Bible where like 11 and a half or 11 and three quarters chapters of the whole thing, I'm sorry, 12 and three quarters, are the voices is the voice of you know popular wisdom to be critiqued? I find it beautiful and, and fascinating. And one of the reasons that I'm looking at Ecclesiastes over the next few weeks is because in my journey, I've really enjoyed wisdom literature over these last three years. I mentioned before that I kind of grew up in uh, in a Christian culture that was really um, influenced by tribal thinking. Uh, and this idea of where do we find Christian wisdom? We find it in the epistles and the epistles only. Um, and, and there's good Christian wisdom there, but there's a whole section of the Bible that's devoted to figuring out how to live thoughtfully and wisely in an ever-changing world. You see, every generation has... Every generation of Christians have made the mistake of blindly fusing popular wisdom with biblical faith. It even happened in the Old Testament as well, as the Israelites fused their religion with the religion of the you know, neighbouring countries and everything like that. But it happened for the Christians in Rome. It happened for Christians in you know, medieval Europe. It happened to Australian Christians in the early days as they came as missionaries, white Australians, to, mission, you know, to be here and the crimes that, that they committed upon Aboriginal people like in, in the name of good biblical Christianity because so often we have fused popular wisdom with good biblical faith and we've got it wrong and, and the, the consequences are devastating. And so I, I take comfort in Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes uniquely encourages the young man, or the, the young adult, all of us really, to think critically about our world and question, is, is this the right thing to do? See, if, if the church culture that I grew up in had taken wisdom literature seriously, then I don't think it would have, been, it would have taken me 30 years of my life to be able to start to think a little bit more crit critically about what is right and wrong. 
But as, as long as we don't do that and we train people to have tribal passive thinking, then we're not doing what Ecclesiastes and all of wisdom commands us to do. And so if I was to summarise the, the message of Ecclesiastes, like I could just read the words of you know, the end of chapter 12. That's, that's beautiful cheat notes in itself. Um, he says, now all this has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For, every, uh, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Should we live the quiet life, the submissive life, or should we live the progressive life? We need to submit to God, right? And so the progressive life, pushing, reaching, searching, can be arrogant and apart from him. And so we need to make sure that we are living life under God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't let your heart guide your wisdom. Direct your heart toward God and the worship of him. Yet, it is good, right, and appropriate to live a thoughtful life. And so my little one-sentence conclusion for all of Ecclesiastes is, is how should we live? Under God, pursue thoughtful living. I think that might be a helpful little paraphrase. Under God, pursue thoughtful living. And hopefully that'll be helpful for us as we continue to unpack the guts of Ecclesiastes over the next couple of weeks. As next week we'll look at risk, um, uh, no, pleasure next week and then risk the week after. Cool, well, I'm going to pray and then I'll hand it over to Dennis. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good, life-giving word to us. We thank you that your law and your precepts are pure and wonderful and they are sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. And so we pray that we would have hearts and minds that are directed towards you and that under you we would pursue thoughtful living for your glory. Amen.